when I went to China to find hermits, I had no idea where I was going to find a hermit. Mountain, obviously, would be my first choice, but which mountain? China's got lots of mountains. I just happened to fly into Beijing during the Tiananmen protests. I went to the, the monastery where the headquarters of the Buddhist Association, and I met this monk. And I said, I'm interested in writing up about hermits. He said he wasn't sure, but he had heard there were still hermits in the Jungnan Mountains. I had inadvertently discovered hermit heaven. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, as the show's guests demonstrate. By doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. I waited a very long time to have this discussion with Bill Porter, and it was well worth the wait. Bill is a prolific writer and adventurer, and also under the pen name of Red Pine, a renowned translator of ancient Chinese works from Cold Mountain to Lao Tzu. Bill has written and translated dozens of books over many decades, and his radio shows in China were tuned into by millions a day. Those shows featured the accounts of his ambitious adventures, including traveling the length of the Yellow River from its mouth to its source. Bill also sought out and found hermits living in the mountains of China, and his book, Road to Heaven, has sold over 2 million copies in China and is credited with helping to revive the Taoist hermit tradition. We spend some time talking about not only Bill's adventure in finding hermits, but also about hermit life, then and now. Bill continues to translate today, still as Red Pine, and is nearing completion of a new book of poetry. We talk about how he acquired his name Red Pine and his inspiration for translating in the first place. Bill is a fascinating interviewee, having interviewed hundreds of guests himself on a radio show in China, and has lived a life of incredible cultural explorations and the subsequent sharing of their details. His storytelling is superb, and his material endless. I have no doubt that you enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Bill Porter. Bill, welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio. Well, thanks for inviting me, Todd. It's great to have you. Let's start with something I just asked you, which is about your pen name, Red Pine, because a lot of our listeners are going to know you by that rather than Bill Porter. Can you tell us where the, the name Red Pine came from? Well, it's just, you know, like when, uh, when people come from other countries to, uh, to the U.S., they often, you know, change, acquire a uh, an English name like John or Mary or something like that. So um, often when Westerners go to Taiwan, China, places in, the, in, in Asia, they pick up Asian names. So I went to Taiwan in 1972 to live in a monastery. And uh, they, the, uh, the monk I had met in New York that sort of prompted that Master Shouye gave me the name Shengyun or Victorious Cloud. And so I started using that when I got to Taiwan. That was my name in Taiwan. Um, my first three or three and a half years were in monasteries. And after I decided I didn't really want to be a monk, I uh, loved the monastic environment, um, but I, I like to, what shall I say? I've never really enjoyed authority figures uh, in my life. 
And uh, so I decided I wouldn't live in a monastery, but I would like to stay in Taiwan. I love Taiwan. If I moved to a farming village outside of the capital city of Taipei up on top of a mountain and um, I had to take a bus down um, to teach English. In the monastery, I didn't need any money, but suddenly I had to raise a few hundred dollars every month to pay, pay rent and food. And one day this, uh, the bus stopped at an advertisement for black, thai, black pine cola, Heisong Chi Shui. And I said, that's, that's, that's the name. I was looking for a, a new name, a, a non-monastic name. And, uh, but it, it was uh, for a, a product that was Japanese. And of course, black is, is a, in a sense, jet, black is probably the favorite color of, of, of people in Japan. And uh, in China, uh, it's red. So I said, uh, I like that, a pine tree, but, but the color's wrong. So I just myself added the word red, red pine. And I, I started using that as my name, my Chinese name. Um, and about six months later, I was doing some research because I was beginning to, to translate um, uh, Cold Mountain's poems. And I discovered the first great Taoist in Chinese history was Master Red Pine, the rain master of the Yellow Emperor. And I liked that a lot because I was just experiencing what translation involved. And I realized that it, it is, it's sort of like being a shaman. You really have to, have to stand apart from your normal mindset because um, that just gets in the way. So I thought that makes a lot of sense to me. It's sort of like Red Pine is the name I, I started using, but it was also a recognition of, of uh, where I was getting a lot of my inspiration from. And so uh, when I published my first uh, couple of books, I thought, well, I'll use that name it's, because it's, it's, again, it was an indication to me uh, as a translator uh, honoring where my translations were coming from. And right. it, it wasn't just Bill Porter doing these translations. No, anyway, that's where the name came from. And I've kept it uh, all these years. Um, um, there was some one point around 1999, I think, around 1999, I was teaching at the City of 10,000 Buddhas and working on the translation of the Diamond Sutra. And I was publishing it with Jack Shoemaker a counterpoint and Jack uh, called me one day and said, Bill, you know, I've been talking to our marketing people and they think that this name Red Pine has, has really got to go. It's that new agey thing and it turns off readers and they think you're some, you know, hair-brained lunatic. Um, he didn't say that. I, I'm adding, putting words in his mouth. Anyway, he said, we need to change that because I said, Cause we'll sell more books. I said, I want to sell books too, Jack. So if you think it's uh, if it's the way to go, then fine. And a week later, I got a phone call from him. He says, "I just got off the phone with Gary Snyder, and Gary says it's Red Pine." So, so I I tip my hat to to, to Gary for for saving that name for me because uh, you know to me it was just a name. But again, I started using it as a way of thanking uh, the sources of my of my translation work. And it's, right. so I've had that name ever since, but I, I use it for translation, not for writing. So I, I, I do write books too. 
but uh, the red pine's not doing the writing. I'm not getting any shamanic, you know, inspiration. Okay. Thanks for that clarification. So you mentioned you went to China to live in a monastery. What was your inspiration for doing that? My inspiration, uh, just the discovery of the Dharma. And uh, I went to, I was in New York City, and I went there to study, uh, go to graduate school at Columbia. And I had applied to go to Columbia because they had a real, really good anthropology department. I was getting my degree at Santa Barbara in anthro. So I applied to uh, Margaret Mead with Benedict, a lot of really good anthropologists. And, and Marvin Harris was one of my favorites. He was a, a Marxist anthropologist. And uh, anyway, uh, I needed financial aid, so I applied for all the different fellowships you could apply. Cause I was getting $100 a month from the GI Bill at the time, but that uh, I needed more than that. So there's one language fellowship funded by the National uh, called the National Defense Foreign Language Fellowship. Obviously, the, the Defense Department was funding it. It was for the Americans who study a rare language. And I checked that box, and I just read a book called The Way of Zen by Alan Watts. Hmm. And it made a lot of sense because it dovetailed with a lot of the things I was uh, thinking about. And um, So I just, on a whim, wrote in the word Chinese. <laughs> And I, I really, I honestly, I had no interest in Chinese, no interest in China. But, was, you know, I was filling out the blank, you know, filling in a blank. And they gave me a four-year fellowship to go to Columbia, study Chinese and anthropology together. Wow. And one of my classmates uh, there uh, introduced me to a monkey I met in Chinatown, and I started spending weekends uh, uh Weekend retreats up the Hudson. Forgot exactly where it was. Uh, you know, meditating and, and you know, meeting somebody who was a the first time I'd met somebody who, who had devoted their lives to the Dharma, and I was very impressed. This is the Master Show Yen. Uh, he was from China. He lived most of his life on Wu Tai Shan, uh, a mountain in, in northern China. He ended up in uh, being invited to the States by a wealthy Chinese man who lived in New York. So he was paying the bills and building the, the temple that he lived in. So anyway, it was just being there together with this, this, this monk, spending time with him. I was very impressed with him about how he had lived his life. Um, and plus I was reading, he couldn't speak any English and my Chinese was rudimentary. So it wasn't like we communicated verbally. But I was just impressed with that as a, a life choice and was starting to read books about Buddhism. Since I had read this book, well, The Way of Zen, I started reading more about, about Buddhist, uh, uh, Buddhist sutras and Zen texts. And thought it made a lot more sense to me uh, to spend my life doing something like that than getting a PhD and living in the academic world, probably would have been my future. So after two years of doing that, I decided to quit the program. And I went, again, the same classmate had, had, had visited Taiwan briefly after he graduated from college and had stopped in Taiwan and, and met this one woman. 
at a monastery. And uh, so I, I wrote to her and asked her if she would be my sponsor because I discovered if a Westerner who, who went to Taiwan to stay required a sponsor in those days. So she became my sponsor and uh, introduced this monastery with, where my friend and her had met. And I went to Taiwan to live in a monastery just like that. Um, you know, it was at time, this was 1972, and there was not a lot of attraction to American culture. Uh, for somebody who who could see what was going on, you know, the Vietnam War um, and just the aftermath, um, I didn't want to live in America anymore. And um, so I went to Taiwan. I thought, just try, try another place. And one of the things I discovered in living in Taiwan is I didn't realize it, but I, I love to be a foreigner. Um, even though I speak some Chinese, Chinese uh, people in Taiwan could be speaking Chinese all around me and I just would turn it all off. It was very easy to turn it off because it wasn't my language. So it was like uh, Taiwan was my own monastery. I like I like living there. Plus, it was it was uh, a rudimentary culture at the time because Chiang Kai Shek had fled to Taiwan in 1949 with his army, with three million people, and was thought he was just staying there temporarily. He was going right back to the mainland to fight the communists, but he he never did. So he didn't invest any money into Taiwan. Anything that was built there was built by the Japanese. The Japanese took over Taiwan in 1895 after the Sino-Russian War. And um, anyway, uh, Taiwan had a flavor that I really liked. It was, you know, simple. People lived close to the land. Um, they were extremely friendly people. And I liked not being in, in America and also living in a Buddhist environment where Everybody else was practicing Buddhist uh, teachings. They were, you know, meditating, chanting, uh, and just living together, uh, just doing this within the, the confines of the sacred space called the, a monastery. And I, I really, really liked living in a monastery. It was a wonderful experience. In fact, it was really hard to leave, and I probably never would have left if it wasn't just uh, after... But when I was about three and a half years in these two different monasteries. I was this one monastery in northern Taiwan, and um, the abbot called me into his room and said, "We just heard from the U.S. consulate that your father has died." And um, about a week later, I got a letter from my father, and the letter was only like my my, my father never wrote letters. It was always my Aunt Pearlene, his sister, who wrote me. But my father just wrote this simple little letter. You know, you've been over there for nearly four years now. Isn't it about time you did something productive with your life? Hmm. And so that hit me really hard. And I, I, about a month later, I moved out of the monastery. And uh, again, my sponsor, a Chinese woman, had a neighbor in Taipei who had some property up on this mountain. And he had these old farm sheds that he had converted into rentals. And so I uh, moved up to a place called Bamboo Lake. 
and lived uh, at Bamboo Lake for the next 14 years, running this, this farm shed. It was a nice farm shed. I mean, it had plumbing. Not that we really, I mean, the toilet, we definitely were happy to have. But, uh, I was happy to have it because I was single then. Um, they had a bathtub too, but we never really used the bathtubs because this mountain was volcanic I was living on. And the uh, local farmers had jury rigged some pipes up to some fumaroles, uh, you know, where the gas was coming out, the hot water. So we they, they, they built these two uh, large bathhouses that were just, you know, with uh, simple construction, some corrugated uh, corrugation material on, on, the, on the roof, and open 24 hours a day, one for men, one for women. So uh, I could get take long hot baths. I, I, I'd never experienced this lying in hot water for an extended period of time. I used to do it every, every day, at least once, sometimes twice, because in the winter, it would snow uh, in this area. Um, we, were, we were on the weather ridge, so we, we sometimes would get snow a couple times a year. So I was typing then. I, I bought a typewriter and worked on my translations. And you, you, after you know your your hands get cold, so cold that they, you know, they have a hard time um, typing. So about during the winter, I'd, I'd go up, take hot baths at least twice a day, just to get my hands warm again. So, uh, anyway, that's why I went to Taiwan to live in a monastery. That's why I stayed in Taiwan because I loved being in Taiwan and, and not being in America. Um, I remember at one point after five years, I, I got hepatitis and couldn't teach English anymore. And my, my mother sent me a one-way ticket back to America. Um, and so I flew back to America and the friend picked me up at the airport and, and drove me to his place up in, up in the hills uh, outside of L.A. I couldn't help crying. I just kept crying. Being back in America was such a traumatic experience. Um, the first thing I did was get a job at the Forest Service. And uh, I needed to build work my body back so I had some strength again. So I worked at the Apache at Sitgraves Forest in, in Arizona where my mother uh, had remarried and, and her her. Her husband, my stepfather, had a cabin I could live in, so I, I, I got a job with the Forest Service. Made it. as soon as I had enough money to get out of America, I flew back to Taiwan, and, uh, and then I, I never left until twenty years. I mean, until I'd been in Taiwan twenty years. But I liked Taiwan a lot. It was, it was also, the, in a sense, the repository of, of traditional Chinese culture. Um, the communists, you know, were wiping everything. They out that they could that was associated with traditional culture. They were trying to you know change everything. Um, so any, anybody who had uh, who was a, a an artist of note or intellectual of note uh, left China as soon as if they could they did it um, with with Chiang Kai Shek or somehow through Hong Kong they they found their way to Taiwan. So uh, they had wonderful bookstores in Taiwan where you could get any 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 kind of book. And of course, this was in the days when, it, when 
the Taiwanese and the Chinese were, were pirating books too. There was no real real uh, authority uh, in that part of the world that, that's, that was going to stop them from doing that. So you could get anything in English uh, as well as Chinese in these bookstores. And also, if you wanted to learn something, if you wanted to learn Qigong or Tai Chi, they, they had these great teachers who were, were masters from China who had, had fled to Taiwan. They were, they were there for the asking. And there were very, very few Westerners in Taiwan at the time. Um, those who were there had been there associated with the Vietnam War as Taiwan became kind of an R&R place. But there were there's almost nobody interested in Chinese culture uh, in those days. So, uh, like, I, I got, I thought, well, maybe I'll study calligraphy. So my sponsor arranged for me to study with the most famous calligrapher in Taiwan, a man named Zhuang Yan, who was the curator of the Palace Museum, this famous museum uh, in Taiwan, uh, uh, Chinese art. Um, I never, I, I tried Tai Chi a little bit, but just like, Calligraphy, I, I never really had a feel for either, any of those things. Um, but that was the kind of the reason why I love Taiwan. Is anything you wanted to do uh, with Chinese culture, it was there. And it was and it was welcoming because they were so happy that a Westerner would be interested in their culture. Because they were all trying to learn more about Western culture. And, you know, they felt a little inferior about their, their own culture as a result. So, anyway, I love Taiwan. I probably would have never left, but my wife and I, I uh, between monasteries, I uh, I went to this, again, my sponsor. She talked me into studying at this Chinese college, the, the College of Chinese Culture. Now, now it's a university, but uh, so I spent one semester. She said, well, you'll improve your Chinese if you attend university, because in a monastery, you don't really talk much. And my Chinese was not improving much in, in, when I was at the monasteries. But one of the classes I uh, attended was taught by a, a professor named Xie Wei. And, and uh, Professor Xie had studied with Bertrand Russell and Alfred North Whitehead at Harvard. Uh, and so one of the, I was there for uh, the Alfred North Whitehead semester. And this girl sat behind me in class. And, uh, well, eventually we got married. After seven years, her finally, her parents finally agreed to let us get married. They really weren't that keen on it because they had no sons, and and she had a great job and she was supporting them. And usually, when, when daughters marry, they marry out. The family loses them and their and their their, their income. Anyway, uh, so my wife and I. Uh, we got married and had two kids, and there came some point that we decided, you know, our kids really need to learn English. And so I couldn't, I, was, I had no interest in making money, so I wasn't making enough money to send our kids to international schools in Taiwan. So we decided to come back to America after 20 years in Taiwan. And um, I needed to get some money first. So I had been working for this radio station in Taiwan. When I got married, I, I realized I needed a real job. So I worked for this radio station. It was the old U.S. Army radio station that the U.S. had abandoned when we recognized China. 
And so they made it into a nonprofit board that's made up of American Chamber of Commerce mem members and wealthy Chinese business leaders. And it was, uh, it was so popular in Taiwan. It had an average, every day, it had an average of 2 million listeners. Oh, wow. Everybody, everybody on the island listened to it because they wanted to improve their English. And it was uncensored, too. Our news was, was you know, whatever we came up with. Um, they hired me to do local news. They'd send a taxi up to my my, my farm shed around 5 o'clock every morning, bring me down to the radio station, which was halfway down the mountain. And then I would um, you know, read. They had all the, all the morning newspapers waiting for me. And I would translate the top 10 stories and compare the different versions of different papers and come up with something for the, the, the 7.30 newscast. And then around 9 o'clock, when the offices open, I'd start calling up the different ministries getting updates on certain stories, uh, tracking down people and arranging interviews. Every week I had to have a half an hour interview program with somebody who spoke English. Um, so one of the men I had interviewed was Winston Wong, Wong Wenyang. He was the, uh, the son of the richest man in Taiwan, uh, Wang Yongqing. And Winston uh, ran the world's biggest a plastics factory for most of plastics and uh, I was interviewing him one day and after the interview I said well, this, this might, might be my last interview I'm, I just applied to the Guggenheim Foundation to go to China to find hermits because I could translate the poetry of, of people like Cold Mountain and uh, he thought that was a wonderful idea he said they don't give you the money I will and of course they did, and of course he did. And I quit my job at the radio station. I went to China, find hermits, and came back to Taiwan and spent a, over a year uh, writing a book about it called "Road to Heaven." It, it hasn't made much of an impact in America, but I can't walk down the street in China without being recognized. That book that book sold over two million copies. Really? Wow. <laughs> but it hadn't at that time. It, yeah. It, it took, a, it didn't do anything for about 15 years or so. Wow. When my wife and I decided to come back to, to move back to America with the kids, I called up Winston again. I said, Winston, my wife and I are thinking, you know, going back to America, but there's one thing I always wanted to do, and that was to explore the origins of Chinese culture. And I like to, I like to, with Chinese culture had originated along the Yellow River in North China. So I wanted to take a trip up the Yellow River. And he said, well, how, much, how, how long do you think it'll take? And how much money do you need? He said, about, about three months. And I think I'll need about $9,000. He said, do you want that in cash or traveler's checks? Hmm. I went down there that day, picked up the money. And the next week, while I was getting ready, I boss at the radio station to I hadn't worked it there for a year and a half because I was writing this book. He said, Bill, I'm, I, I'm going to Hong Kong. I just got a job in Hong Kong. Uh, the two richest men in Hong Kong, uh, Run Run Sha and, and uh, who was the other guy? Uh, the guy who was a, started making plastic flowers. Uh, I forgot his name. Um, 
Anyway, they, Ren Shaw was the guy who started martial arts films, you know, Golden Harvest pictures. Anyway, they got the first English license for an English language radio station in Hong Kong. All the, all the other stations were, were government run. So anyway, he hired my boss to, to go run it. And um, my boss asked me to come with him and uh, be the features editor. He said, the only thing you have to do is give me two minutes a day. Give me two minutes a day. That, that'll, that'll, that's it. So I said, well, I've just got this money from Winston to go travel up the Yellow River. So why don't I take that trip and I'll write about it. So I took that trip. I went to the mouth of the Yellow River and traveled all the way to the source. Of course, you just don't travel on the river. The Yellow River is not a river for boats. Um, the world's second siltiest river is the Colorado. And it, it's, its silt content can sometimes get up to 10% of volume. The Yellow River silt content is 50%. Wow. Five times siltier than the world's second siltiest river. It is not, what it is, it's just a mud fire hose. <laughs> all, all of North China is just the result of that mud fire hose just swinging back and, back and forth over a million years, just filling in everywhere from Beijing down to Shanghai. That is all Yellow River mud. Um, so when you travel up the Yellow River, you don't travel by boats. You can sometimes I would cross it in certain sections, but you can never go in, in a boat. You always have to go in two boats. Boats always have to travel in pairs, so one boat can help get them, uh, pull the other boat off of the sandbar because they're, they're always getting stuck. So anyway, I took this trip up the Yellow River and uh, came back to, Ty to, Hong, to Hong Kong and uh, wrote two hundred and forty radio programs because two minutes a day that's what I'm supposed to do so I did 240 radio programs and um, broadcast them in Hong Kong and it was a huge success so the boss said to keep doing it so I did I went on the Silk Road from Xi'an to Islamabad uh, visited all the hill tribes uh, what, what I would do I would just try to think of a, of a I would look at a, at a map and I would think of, of a cultural itinerary, um, one that made sense geographically or, or in time or space, and, uh, and just take a trip. Usually my trips would be about, about six weeks long, and then I would come back to Hong Kong and spend 12 weeks writing enough radio programs so I'd be far enough ahead I could take another six-week trip. So I, I traveled all over China and... In doing these programs, I, I learned to write. Um, I, I would highly recommend anybody who, who wants to learn to write. One of the ways you could do it is learning to write for radio. Because people have to, have to understand it right away. Um, they can change the channel anytime. So you have to grab their attention and you have to keep it. And so anyway, that's how I learned how to write. And uh, during that two years I made enough money, saved enough money to con come back to America and I moved to where I'm sitting right now in 1993. We uh, moved back to Port Townsend, Washington, bought this house and I'm 
still living in it. Jeez, it's about 30 years now. This house. Um, that was a long digression, by the way. No worries. I'm just enjoying it. <laughs> I'm just along for the ride. With that radio job and the traveling, it sounds nearly perfect. I'm curious why why you left that to come back to the states. Well, it was a, it was a two year gig. Uh, I mean, they wanted to renew the contract, uh, but I wanted to bring the kids back to learn English uh, and and also. You know, it, it, it was great doing the, doing the traveling and, and, and the writing, but I really wanted to translate sutras. Mm. Um, and, of course, there's no market in that, so there's no support for that. So, I mean, I, I, when I was in Hong Kong, I did no other writing. I, I didn't translate anything. I didn't work on any sutras or poetry. Or, so... It was it was time to to do what I felt I was meant to do, which is uh, translate poetry and, and and the Dharma. When did you recognize that calling? Was that the letter from your dad that helped to spur that, or? Oh, I, I, I recognized it was a sort of gradual thing, but um, I mean, I didn't set out to, to be a translator at all. It's just that the abbot. Of the temple where I that I left uh, before I left, he he published a Chinese edition of Cold Mountain's poetry. He financed it and gave me a copy. So I already had Cold Mountain's poetry, uh, and I I discovered when I was at even at the monastery, I would try to translate things because I discovered that was a great way to learn Chinese. Uh, sometimes you read something you think you understand it, but if you try to translate it, then you you really have to understand. It. So I was just doing this with odds and ends of these different texts that would fall into my hands. Um, and so I just continued that with the Cold Mountain text the abbot had give, given me. And, uh, never planned to to do anything with it. But one day uh, an American knocked on, knocked on my door and said, uh, I, I heard you're working on Cold Mountain's poetry. You need a publisher. And he said, yeah. I'd sent some samples to uh, uh, Weatherhill, Tuttle, and Shambhala, and they turned them turned them down. Um, so, with this this American, Mike O'Connor, was from Port Townsend, and he knew this press here at Port Townsend called Copper Canyon. So, they offered to publish my translations. So, I, in a sense, I I was stuck. I was stuck. I be careful what you ask for. I hadn't really intended on, on translating all his poems, but, but people kept you know, asking, well, do them all, do them all. Well, okay. So I did them all, and then I, somebody, somebody published them too. So this volume that I had been using, the Qing Dynasty Whitlock edition I was using, after Cold Mountain's poems, there was a poems by another guy named um, Stonehouse, Sherwu. And his poems were even better than Stone yeah, than Cold Mountains, and so I translated them and them as well. And uh, I was working for the radio station then in Taiwan, so I had money, and uh, I financed uh, myself a, pub, uh, a publication. I, uh, my friend uh, Mike O'Connor was from Port, this Port Townsend area, and there's another press, a little 
a, a hippie press. You might say a bunch of tree planter poets had their own little press called Empty Bowl, and uh, they agreed to distribute Stonehouse for me. And so I, I translated all of Stonehouse's poems and uh, found a, a, a press a printer in Taiwan to print them on handmade paper and bind them the traditional Chinese way and sent them to my to Empty Bowl here in Port Townsend to distribute. So suddenly I had I had two or three books just suddenly came out and I did the same again the you know, I was at the monastery I had this book the abbot gave me with all the teachings of the early Zen masters and it had a number of things attributed to Bodhidharma. So I translated all of Bodhidharma's stuff too and published them with empty bowl. I was starting to to do this, uh, realizing that these things were wonderful ways of for me to learn about the Dharma. Again, because when you translate something, you really have to dig into it. Um, so I, I was, while I was learning about the Dharma, I was becoming a translator. Um, and then it, it just suddenly, I, it took a long time before I realized what was going on. But what was re, what I realized is that translation is a performance art. It's a it's an interior dance you do. Um, and I was I was addicted. I was becoming addicted to the dance, to the experience of translation. It, and it has nothing to do about whether your translation is good or bad, but it's the experience of trying, trying to translate. Put me in this space, this red pine space. And I love that experience. Hmm. Um, so I, so I, I just became uh, a translator. I didn't realize what I was doing until Around 2000, I think it was 2002, there was a college in Boston called Simmons College. And they held the world's first international uh, conference on the translation of Chinese poetry. They invited me to come. And they asked me to write something about how I translate. And I had no idea how I did it. It's like, you, you know, Michael Jordan probably never thought about how he plays basketball. I had no idea how I translated so then I, I thought about it and that's when I realized what was going on this this dance that was going on and how much I loved doing the dance and again it's not about the results because every time you go on the dance floor you, you, you dance the same dance differently so you mentioned Road to Heaven which is a fascinating book I, I love it it's uh, such a great read and it's a it is a very immersive cultural experience for the reader. Sold 2 million copies. Is that in Taiwan and China? And was Not it, in Taiwan. In China. Was, in China. Was that the English or a translated Chinese? Oh, Chinese. Okay. Did you write the Chinese? No, it had nothing to do with it. Well, I mean, I the person who, you know, trans, you know, did the translation. This, there was a, uh, when I went to China to find hermits, I had no idea where I was going to find a hermit. Um, mountain, obviously, would be my first choice, but which mountain? China's got lots of mountains. I just happened to, to fly into Beijing uh, during the Tiananmen protests. This was May of, of, of uh, 89. And uh, I went to the, the, the monastery where the, uh, the headquarters of the Buddhist Association was, Guangji Se. And... Uh, I was walking around and I met this monk and he turned out to be the deputy director of the association. 
and he had uh, asked me to have a cup of tea with him, and I did. I, I wondered what I was. He wondered what I was doing there, and I said, "I'm I'm I'm interested in writing about about hermits because I've translated the poetry of Cold Mountain and Stonehouse, and I wonder if people really live like are there people like this, and are are there still people like this? Because uh, for all I knew, it was a literary conceit. Um, but anyway, I asked him, did had he does that tradition still exist in China? He said, well, he said he wasn't sure, but he had heard there were still hermits in the Jungnan Mountains. And that's all he said. And then there was another monk sitting next to him. No, there was a, a layman, excuse me, it's a layman sitting next to him who was obviously the dedicated cadre. No, and he said, no, 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 there's no hermits in China. There, no, there's, you know, he sort of dismissed what the, what this, what the Jinghui, this master Jinghui had said. And so I remembered that with that. So when I got to Sion, I asked people, Where's, where are the Jonan Mountains? And they said, oh, just south of town. And of course, it's a range that stretches 800 kilometers east to west. <laughs> and it's about 200 kilometers north to south. So so I don't know. I just... I, I, Formidable task. Yeah, and I brought it. Uh, I had a friend with me from Port Townsend who was a photographer because uh, I wanted to take photographs. And so... We just went out on the street and flagged down a taxi driver and uh, asked her to take take us to the mountains. To, we talked with her on the way to the mountains. We said, just take us to the Jungnan Mountains <laughs> and and drop us off at the foot of the mountains and, and pick us up in two days. And so she was an interesting woman. She had a beautiful dress on. She was a, a dressmaker. Uh, their parents had been, you know, dressmakers uh, before the Cultural Revolution. Anyway, she took us to the to the uh, the mountains and, and left us, and we just walked up the mountains, and they got rather steep. Uh, uh, it wasn't. It wasn't. We didn't have to climb rocks. It was. It was more like mud. Um, slip hill, very slick hillsides. Finally, we got up to the rocky areas. And, it took us about two hours, but there we were. There was a monastery right there. It was a dilapidated monastery, but a small monastery. And we knocked on the door. They opened it. We, I told them what we were looking for. They said, oh, yeah, sure. Who do you want to meet? <laughs> there were hermits all over the place. I had, I had inadvertently discovered hermit heaven. <laughs> there were about 200 hermits living within a couple hours' walk. That is depending which you can go in any direction. You're going to run run into hermits. This is where hermits have been living for uh, probably four thousand years, um, because that the Sion was was the was where the ancient capital known as Chang'an was located, and hermits always were associated with a power center. Uh, there is historically the shaman. Uh, Tradition is the gen so what generated the hermit tradition. The shaman was an important part of, of, of Neolithic societies, and there's always were these people in China who would go off to, to find herbs, to have visions, um, and experiences, and then come back to the community to, uh, to provide their services. So there were always the, the, sh the sh shamanic people going up into the mountains. And so when Buddhism arrived. Uh, it also uh, brought the tradition 
of spending time alone as being uh, not to they didn't go in the mountains to find herbs to have visions they went into the mountains just to meditate and even the confucians uh, that around 400 500 bc uh four or five hundred years before there were any buddhists in, in china there were there were confucian hermits and the, this, this tradition began as chinese civilization began um, these shamans who had previously been been helping people were were uh, were no longer had any function. They weren't respected, so they just started hanging out in the mountains. That's where Taoism began, and so there, there began this this this, this uh, these people in the mountains surrounding civilized centers who uh, turned their back on civilization. But they were always there to help people if they needed, if they wanted it. And so uh, when the Confucianism arose, there was also the same attitude. Well, if the king is benevolent, then we should serve him. But if the king is not, then we should stay in the hills. And so that's why how this hermit tradition began in China. There are three different kinds of hermits. There were Taoists, there were Confucians, and there were Buddhists. And they were all using the mountains as their place of refuge, but for different purposes. I mean, in a sense, the same purpose, spiritual uh, development, but, but they were practicing different traditions. Well, that's how this tradition began. Uh, and generally it was in a power, near a power center, um, usually a couple hours you know, away uh, as, as modern civilization began uh, with roads and stuff. Uh, they moved higher up the hills. Um, when I was interviewing these hermits in the Jungnan Mountains, there were about 200 hermits in the area that I was working in. And based upon the names that I received, you know, because every hermit would, every hermit notes every other hermit in the area. They generally, there's about a, I figure it's like wild animals. There's about a, you need a, a wild animal has to have its own territory you know, to hunt. And hermits have a territory too. It's about fifteen minutes, I figured. Uh, and every every fifteen minutes, a hermit needs that territory uh, to be able to plant some things. It's very steep, so you, there's not a lot of places you can plant. So, you, but you find some places where you can plant, and also you need firewood. And hermits, nobody cuts down a tree; it's all deadfall. Um, if you cut down a tree, that's because you're building something. You don't use uh, live wood uh, for fire. So anyway, hermits, you know, live about 15 minutes apart. Uh, when you're in a hermit area, there's there's going to be another hermit 15 minutes. But 99% of the time on any mountain in China, there are no hermits. Hermit mountains are these centers that have developed over three or 4,000 years. Um, people who practice this tradition have just found certain mountains to be good places to practice. So if you're on a, if you find one hermit on a mountain, you're going to find dozens of hermits. Um, and so these people are generally living alone. Men almost always live alone. Women tend to live in pairs for safety. And when they do, it's a, uh, it's master disciple. When men live together, it's usually brothers. I mean, Dharma brothers. You know, same age, maybe two two disciples of the same master. Uh, that does happen sometimes, but usually the men are living alone, women are living in pairs, and uh, 
as I said, when I when I did my interviews, there were about 200 hermits in the area I was working in, and th that is what Road to Heaven is based on. And when Road to Heaven was translated into Chinese, there is one a cameraman in the Xi'an area who used my book because uh, I, I talk about trails and distances and stuff, directions. So he used my book to go into the Zhongnan Mountains. And the same area where I had uh, estimated there were 200 hermits, he had personally filmed over 600. Wow. And so when the Chinese film company asked me to go, go into the mountains about, uh, that must have been about 10, 15 years ago, uh, they hired him as their cameraman. That's how I had found out that he had been using my book to, to, to locate hermits and to film them. And so the hermit population had tripled since 8990. So that would have been about uh, 20 years. Suddenly there were 600 hermits living in the same area. Um, and they were different. Um, the hermits in 8990 had very little education. Usually they were high, high school graduates were rare. Suddenly, it, it, 10 years ago now, when, I, when this movie was made, um, they're college graduates, Beijing University dropouts, um, professors, doctors, professionals in short, dropping out of the society to pursue this path that, again, is an ancient path in, in, in China. I mean, it's not made for everybody, but uh, because as a, result, as a result of me doing all these interviews, I could say that what the hermit tradition is in China is what we would call graduate school for the spiritually inclined, whether you're a Taoist or a Confucian or a Buddhist. It's your graduate school. It's where you go to get your PhD, uh, which you self-award. Not everybody goes to graduate school. But by the same token, you cannot go to graduate school without an undergraduate degree. So you can't just... Uh, my book was criticized in some of the Chinese press because they, people were starting to run off to the mountains. And of course, that's unfortunate because those are the people who aren't going to make it. Um, sometimes when I'd be hiking in the hills, I would be talking with a hermit. You know, I, I would I'd say, well, I, I, saw, I saw some smoke up, up, up a little bit higher. So there's somebody else. They say, yeah, yeah, there's new, new guys up there, but they're not going to last one winter. Uh, because the hermit, the hermit life is a really, really, really hard life. You're on your own. Um, there's no doctors up there. Food is hard to come by. Um, so it's, it's not not for everybody. Uh, you need to have a practice to become a to go to this graduate school. Um, usually, your your teacher will take you there. And what I discovered is every monastery in China has a has a, a relationship with, with a specific mountain and that's their graduate school really and that grad and that, and that graduate school might be just right behind the monastery or it might be 500 miles away it just depends on tradition on what previous generations of teachers have where they have they have they taken their their uh, their disciples and where they uh, uh, the graduate school so there are certain mountains in China that are hermit mountains in China, and uh, where these people are go up, just like we don't do for graduate school. We generally 
it's about the same amount of time. I'd say three to five years. So you don't become a hermit. A lot of people think, well, you become a hermit, and then you're a hermit. Well, it's not like that at all. It's, it's They're getting degrees. They're working on a degree. They're trying to find something. And what that something is, is their own voice. You can tell somebody who has their voice or whether they're just repeating what their teacher said. Um, and it takes living alone, I'd say three to five years, just about based on, on these interviews. That I, I mean, there, there are a lot of people who don't make it through one winter. And every once in a while you run into somebody who's been up there 20, 30 years uh, who just don't feel like going back down. Or they go back down, they don't like it, they go right back up. Um, and of course, in China, another curious thing is they're all living there Ill illegally. All the land belongs to the government. They don't own the land. Um, but like there's one, one woman, a very famous uh, Buddhist nun. She was a most famous teacher in the mountains, I would say. She'd been there 30 years. The last time I saw her alive, there were four Communist Party officials in her hut, and they had come up to find out if there was anything they could do for her. The, the point I'm trying to make is that these are the most respected people in Chinese civilization, you could say, is the hermit. Um, and they still are, oddly enough. It's not a tradition that's going away. In fact, the government has been at, at, has gone to great lengths to protect them because there have been all these these people who just take, and some of them who, who have read my book. So they just go into the mountains to build a build a place for the weekends. Uh, and the, the government, when they find that out, they, they destroy the hut and chase the other people out because they the the, the, the government. Which is which is crazy because the government, of course, is the Chinese government. It's not, it's not something you really want to deal with. Uh, it can be very repressive. But they they still respect the hermits. They're not chasing them out of the mountains. Wow! So it sounds like your book had a huge influence throughout the country on hermits and hermit life, and helped to spawn incredible interest in that. Yeah, it, 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 yeah. I, I don't know what to say except yeah, weird. Don't. I, mean, I was writing this book as a proof to myself that Cole Mountain and Stonehouse were uh, were like these people I was meeting in China, I was trying to find their modern representatives, and, and they're still alive. They're, they're not all poets are pretty rare, although they're not now because again the the kind of people I'm seeing in the mountains of China now do have literary skills. Back in 89 and 90, if very few could, could write a poem, I'd say. But now it's not uncommon at all for people living in the mountains to, to, to write poetry. And you think it's the population is still growing of hermits, or is it something that is... Oh, oh no, it's definitely increased. It has. It, it, well, threefold. I mean, but there's, again... It's territory, though. You have to have territory. You need that 15 minutes. You need to grow some vegetables. There's, there's uh, you know, you, they're all, of course, they're all vegetarians. Nobody kills anything on the mountains. Just maybe farmers who are, are hunting game. Um, and there's some things you need, too. As a, as you can't su support yourself entirely uh, by growing vegetables. You need a staple. 
In South China, it's rice. In North China, it's wheat flour. You use the wheat flour to make noodles. And you need salt. You have to preserve you know, vegetables to get through the winter. And you need uh, some cooking oil. And then you used to need kerosene uh, for a lamp. But now they use solar panels. These little, little uh, panels, maybe the size of a laptop. And they'll use one. One for their hut, and then maybe they'll have one outside by the latrine. Uh, so, so they don't need as much. Uh, kerosene is really a bitch to carry up a mountain. <laughs> really happy, and also they, they again, they're, these these hermits are uh, have connections down below too. So people, they have disciples. They have people who visit them on a re- regular basis. And they all look look in on each other too. When you go up to a, on the, when you become a hermit, I mean, it's because of your spiritual practice. That's you're dedicated to going beyond the level of, of experience and understanding that you have, and so you go to the mountains, but you don't know how to live there. So when somebody comes up the mountain, the the hermits who are living there all come and check in on that person. And find out what they need. They, they, they transmit the knowledge of how to be a hermit. You know um, where where you can find certain things. What what uh, what you can eat. What what's poisonous. Uh, and how plants look because you know, they need some money to to pay for this uh, for the rice, the wheat flour, the salt, the uh, the, the cooking oil. Um, I figured it's a, they need about ten bucks a month. In eighty nine ninety, it was about ten bucks a month. Is they're short, um, um, so they need to gather wild herbs and sell them to the herb collectors. Because the herb, herb collectors come up the mountain all the time looking for stuff. So the hermits, you know, become very knowledgeable about what 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 sells, what doesn't sell, and and when to pick it too, and what part of the plant is it? The roots, is it the flowers, the stems? You know, what what part? So anyway, the, the hermits do. Uh, canvas their their area and gather wild plants for them to use themselves to use and also to trade for uh, for survival and so you mentioned they cut down trees only for building are they building their own dwellings then typically oh well in, in the Junan mounds cutting down a tree yeah they, yeah, they, they do cut down trees for uh, what do you call rafters mm-hmm. uh, for roofs uh, but all, all, all the walls are made out of mud. Okay. Because this is this is this is the Los area of China. You know that fine silt called L O E S S Los. Yes. It, it's the finest uh, silt in the in the world, and it has incredible cohesive party uh, 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 qualities. When you build a form and you put the the the, the Los dirt and you maybe mix in a little, little bit of straw. Um, as soon as you've done that, you can take that form and put it on the on top of that. It, the, the the these these bricks just have so yeah are so adhesive they, they just hold together, and it, it only takes a couple days to build a hut. Really? Yeah, because the it takes about oh six days typically hmm. a week it takes about a week to build a, a hut. We're talking about you know, 10 by 10, maybe 10 by 12, too. Sometimes they have uh, 
a little altar inside their hut too. They need a place to, to, to do prostration. So something like 10 by 12 is about a good size. And they just build the walls out of mud. And then they have a, a couple of uh, logs, uh, the trees that they do cut down for rafters. And then they, you know, uh, they begin with thatch, you know, and then they, but they end up with tiles. I mean, if, if, see these, these huts, you don't just build a hut. When you go into the mountain to be a hermit, first you check out the vacancies. Because hermits, again, are there for three to five years. There's always going to be some vacancies. Um, and so usually you look for a hut to move into um, and then, you know, just fix it up. So over the, over the centuries, these, hurt, these huts have, have become, have tiled roofs now, usually slate, you know, made, made from the local, local rocks. Sometimes they're slate. Uh, and occasionally you'll even get modern uh, uh, materials. That is, somebody has some money and pays somebody to, uh, to build a hut. But in, in 89, I, I watched a hut being built by somebody who was a dropout of, of, the, of the Beijing University Chinese Literature Department working on a PhD. They had dropped out, become a, and become, they'd become a monk and studied for three or four years in a monastery. And now they came up the mountain for grad school, you could say. And they, they you know, were well-to-do. They had some money. And they had, you know, this, the, 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 mud, the mud wall um, and but on their on their roof they had real tiles, and the windows had glass in them hmm. instead of instead of just oil paper. Um, and it cost that that monk a hundred dollars to have the the farmers build that hut. Wow! So it's one of the reasons why even in, during the Cultural Revolution the hermit tradition was relatively unaffected. First of all, it's a it's a lot of it's, a lot of trouble to walk up the mountains and knock down a hut, um, and then the the hermit's just going to go right back up there and and, and rebuild that hut. <laughs> um, and, and the importance of that is that all the great masters in Chinese history, and this is true today, all the great masters in Chinese history have been hermits. They've all gone to graduate school. They've all, and the you know that's where you get your voice. That's where you become a teacher. And so the fact that they were unaffected during the Cultural Revolution, relatively, um, is one of the reasons why there, as soon as that period was over in China, there was this big renaissance in religion in China, in Buddhism, somewhat in Taoism, but especially in Buddhism. Because these masters were, were alive and well. You know, they came down that came down. So, Road to Heaven, wonderful account of your trip exploring the hermits and the hermit life in China. You mentioned, though, you also did some other cultural trips. Did you write books about those, or were they mostly just radio shows? Well, they were just radio shows, but because I have this big fan base in China, my publisher there says, do you have any other materials? I said, well, I have these radio shows. And they said, could you convert those into books and so I did I converted them my Yellow River trip it's called the Yellow River Odyssey so I, I wrote them down in English I did not publish them at first uh, they were just translated into Chinese and published in China and, and became popular 
and later I, I, I decided to fix them up a little bit, uh, re rewrote them and, and published them with Counterpoint, the, the press that Gary Snyder introduced me to a long, long time ago. Mm -hmm. That's that's Jack Shoemaker, who runs Counterpoint, is, is Gary's publisher. Gary had introduced me to him because he said, you know, Bill, you need a publisher. And so, uh, so Shoemaker, Jack Shoemaker uh, published these radio books. There's one that's going up the Yellow River and through South China, going to, the, um, to, to Pakistan on a bus, you know, and visiting all the hill tribes. Um, so, yeah, I did, the radio books all became books. The radio programs all became books. Um, and, again, because I had done these radio programs, I, I learned a certain way of writing. I learned if I took a trip, I could write. I don't think I could write if I didn't take a trip. That's the way I, okay. I, I write. So I started, I've written other books too, like Finding Them Gone or Zen Baggage, where I, I look at a map and I, and, I see a, and I see a book. I see if I start here, I can travel through this territory, go down through here, and, and on the way I can, I can develop a theme. For Zen baggage, I start, you know, with the first book with with the, with the different patriarchs of Buddhism, of Zen Zen Buddhism, and uh, wrote about that. And for finding them gone, it was just I wanted to pay my respects to all the great poets in, in Chinese history. So I just looked at a map, and then I started doing a lot of research, finding out where they were from, where they were buried, and where their graves were. And then I made up a map and. Came up with a trip, and I applied to the Guggenheim Foundation again, and this time they gave me the money. Oh wow! <laughs> but it was mainly thanks thanks to uh, William Merwin was made that possible. He wrote a personal letter to the president of Guggenheim, hmm. um, so I, I was able to uh, take this wonderful trip to China and pour whiskey on the graves of all the great poets that I was that, whose graves I could find. Why whiskey? Well, because they've never had had whiskey, they they've had rice wine and millet wine, but they've never had anything 142 proof. And that's what I took. I took a bottle of of, uh, of George T. Stag. Uh, George T. Stag is uh, the, it varies every year. The year the what I took was 142 proof. Okay. And. So it's corn. You know, they don't have corn in China. They not until modern times. So they never had corn liquor or rye either. So yeah. I took another bottle of rye too. Thomas H. Handy rye, six-year rye. Um, it was 126 proof. So I figured uh, this is the way to wake them up. <laughs> you know, the, the, the whiskey's not called spirits for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so. Chinese poets love to drink, and so I felt by honor by introducing them to what we drink in America, this corn liquor or rye rye whiskey, uh, to the best I could bring. <laughs> oh, so wonderful, Bill! Uh, so many books. You we were talking the other day. You said you haven't even counted them all, but thirty-ish some books. Does that sound about right? Somewhere between twenty-five and thirty. Yeah, and I really don't know. Sometimes, uh, sometimes I forget. Then I've, done, I've been doing these chapbooks recently too, 
but I don't know whether I should count them or not. These chapbooks are usually about 60 pages. You know, lately I've, I've just, I, I keep trying to stop writing because I figure, I wonder what it's like not to write. Um, and I, I like gardening. I like taking naps. Um, so maybe I could try not writing. Then when I, as soon as I did that, I, I realized, well, but there are these little projects that I always wanted to do. It's like finding stuff in your drawer. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. So I did this series of, of uh, seven chapbooks with Empty Bowl. Um, when I, well, I think from 2018 to 2021, I did a series of, of chapbooks, none of them more than 60 pages, um, mostly Buddhist uh, materials. Just about little little projects. <laughs> wow! What are you working on now? Um, the poems of uh, Tao Yuanming. I've always wanted to. Tao Yuanming is my favorite poet. Um, lived around the year four hundred, and uh, I always wanted to do him. Have to to, to dance with him. Um, and so I, I just finishing up uh, the, the complete poems right now Tao Yuanming. It won't be published for a while. Uh, maybe Copper Canyon is going to publish it, but it's I, I had to get in line. So uh, it's going to be about a year and a half before that sees the day of light. Okay. Um, so yeah, Tao Yuanming is who I've been, been working on. I'm really happy. I always wanted to, to work on his poems. They're, they, they're it's a way of writing Chinese that looks simple, but it's so hard. Anyway, had a good time doing it. I'm just hoping I can go back to China again before the book's published so I can go visit the places that he's writing about, because I always like to do that. I have visited the, the area around around where he, he lived, but I, I want to find actually where his house was, um, what his perspective was, because they're in the poems. So I want to use the poems to triangulate the locations of, of, of where he was writing these things. It's so great talking to someone who has found their calling, their niche, and such a unique one that you've found and something that has carried you through so many decades and you've been able to inspire so many with it. It's amazing what you've done, really. Well, I can't believe I've been able to get away with it all these, all these years. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful. Yeah. Well, it's, that's that, uh, life calling and you found yours, you found your purpose and I think we've all benefited from it. So thank you for that. Thank you for all the great translations and all the great trips and books that have come from those. Where can people learn more about your work? Is there a main website or do they have to go to different publishers or? Well, there is a Facebook page operated by a fan of mine. His name is Ken Ken Vermees. Okay. I don't know what the web page is. It's just a Facebook page. Okay. And I think if you type in Bill Porter Red Pine on Google, it'll be one of the first things that comes up. It's his Facebook page. Okay. I'll try to find that link. I, mean, I, I don't – I'm a really a bad person to have a fan page because I only supply him with, with things about once every three months. <laughs> Not, yeah, I'm not the kind of person who wants to promote themselves. Right. But I'm I'm happy that somebody likes my work and 
I try to uh, to share things whenever there's something to share. But thankfully, there's not much to share, uh, you know, because I work in books, and so uh, and the book's not done until it's done, and then of course I can share it. But I can't I can't uh, share it as it develops because I'm changing the translations or the writing all the time. I never stop rewriting writing things. In fact, one of the problems having the attitude that I have is it's really hard for me to read the books I publish because I know they could have been better. And I could have that trans every time I go on the dance floor, I'm going to dance a dance different differently. And it's, it, I mean, there are good dances, they're good translations, but they're also, and they're bad translations. There's no, there's no perfect translation. It can be different every day. I try to, I enjoy it. I love, love to do it. But if, like I say, if I open that, oh, that book I published, uh, I know I'm going to dance that differently. I know I'm going right. to make changes. So that's why I, I try not to look at my books because I, and then I, I see things like that. Um, and of course, I make mistakes too. I'm not, I'm not a perfect translator. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for your calling and doing the the work for all of us to benefit from. It's really great to read the the inspirational words of all these uh, ancient poets' work that probably wouldn't otherwise be in English for us to read, and then also to read your accounts of of traveling through China and learning about the culture. My pleasure, Todd. And thank you for taking the time to sit down with me today. I really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure, Todd. Okay. Thanks so much, Bill. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Bill Porter. To learn more about Bill and his adventures, pick up a copy of one of his books and also seek out some of his translations under the pen name of Red Pine. You can also visit his Facebook fan page by using the link in the show notes. If you feel drawn to the study of Chinese medicine, the School of Acupuncture and Chinese Medicine at Pacific Rim College offers world-renowned, multi-year programs including world's first study options, combining acupuncture with Western herbal medicine and holistic nutrition. Visit pacificrimcollege.com to learn more. Also, don't forget to check out our online education in Chinese medicine by exploring the amazing course offerings at pacificrimcollege.online, including many courses featuring other guests of this podcast. Sign up for our newsletter to receive special offers on our newest releases. If you are interested in receiving clinical services in holistic nutrition, herbal medicine, and acupuncture in Chinese medicine, the student clinic at PRC provides more than 7,000 annual treatments. Live holistic nutrition and herbal medicine consultations are both available online, while acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments can be had at our Victoria campus. Free treatment options are available in all areas. Visit the student clinic at pacificrimcollege.com for more information and to book your appointment. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, perhaps there is enough time to partake in your own cultural adventure.